The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. When we think about what does intelligence have to do with cyber and how is it different, there are a number of, of key differences. Number one is there's so much in cyberspace that has to be verified. When we talk about the information battleground, and that means that intelligence agencies have a bigger role to play. Context matters more in trying to figure out what things mean online. So the demands overall are greater. The second, I think, key difference is when is a weapon a weapon in cyberspace, right? So as I learned, you know, 90% of, a, of an exploit looks the same, whether it's intelligence surveillance, whether it's defending your own networks, or whether it's engaging in an offensive cyber operation. And when 90% technically looks the same, again, intelligence matters more. And then the third challenge that I think that is really exacerbated by cyberspace is that the battlefield is changing every millisecond. I'm David Priest, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 22nd, 2022. Last week, the Michael V. Hayden Center for Intelligence, Policy, and International Security and Lawfare hosted an event with Amy Ziegart, a professor at Stanford University and one of the leading academic analysts of the intelligence community, to talk about her new book, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms. I hosted her for this live recording of the podcast, and we talked about intelligence education. We talked about problems with the current structure of congressional oversight of the intelligence community. We talked about the public role of intelligence in the crisis with Russia and Ukraine. We talked about the growing role of open source information in intelligence, and much more. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 22nd, U.S. Intelligence with Amy Ziegart. Welcome to this live recording of the Lawfare Podcast. Amy, so glad you could join us for this. There's a lot to discuss and not a lot of time, but to set the stage, you study intelligence as a political scientist, and you're certainly not the only one to do so, but you've been doing it for decades now. And I'm curious, how did you come to that? Because I remember in graduate school doing political science, there weren't people specializing in intelligence that were role models to look up to. So how did you happen upon making that the focus of most of your academic career? Well, David, first, thanks for reminding everybody how old I am that I've been studying this topic for decades. Um, It's a real honor to be with you uh, in the Two for Lawfare podcast and the Hayden Center. 
And I wanna thank the Hayden Center and the Shar School for having me here. This is a dream team of intelligence folks uh, and it's a real honor to be here. Um, how did I get into this business as a political scientist? The answer is by accident. So I uh, came back from Washington from my stint on the NSC staff and I told my dissertation advisor, who was a woman by the name of Condoleezza Rice, uh, I know what I wanna write my dissertation on. I wanna write it about the National Security Council staff. And she said in a very nice way, but I heard it loud and clear, that's a terrible idea for a dissertation. You're a political scientist. You need to have more than one case study. You need to have a variation in your outcomes. You need to understand what causal factors led to the variation in outcomes. And so I went into the library and I hunted for new cases that I could add. And lo and behold, I came across the National Security Act of 1947 and a little known provision of that act about the Central Intelligence Agency. And so I got hooked on intelligence because of that. Uh, at the time writing in the 90s, uh, nobody thought it was interesting. Even my husband's grandmother said the dissertation topic sounded dull to her, but it was interesting to me. And so I stuck with it. How have you found the receptivity to your work in two very different audiences? On the one side, there is academic political science, which typically, how do we put this politely, has not rewarded intelligence studies, at least in the most prominent journals, um, but also among current and former intelligence officers. I think, David, it really varies on the moment. So, you know, one of the things I found in doing research for this book is exactly what you said. Political scientists, by and large, don't study intelligence. So I actually calculated the number of articles the top three journals in my field published between 2001 and 2016. Think about that time in intelligence, how many important issues there were from Iraq, WMD, detention and interrogation programs, counterterrorism. The top three journals in political science published nearly 3,000 articles over that period. And only five of them, five, less than half a percent, were focused on intelligence, being generous about how I coded for intelligence. So the discipline as a whole generally doesn't focus on intelligence, but I think that's changing. I think there's a renewed interest in secrecy and the strategic use of secrecy and disclosure. So I think this is an exciting wave in political science, but I think as an academic, you have to do what fascinates you. And if the academic world doesn't listen right away, that can be challenging, but life's too short not to focus on what you find intellectually interesting. The intelligence world was not particularly happy with my early work because I focused on failures. Uh, and I often heard from folks inside the community, how come you never focus on our successes? And I would respond because most of them are classified. So if you declassify more, I would be happy to focus on them. So that's one of the reasons why in this book, David, I focus a lot on the Bin Laden operation. Because I think we know a lot about what made it a success, and I think it's important to learn not just from failures, but also successes. And the book we're talking about is uh, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, just out from Princeton University Press. And it is a remarkable book for its pure breadth. You seek in less than 300 pages to provide context for the public understanding of intelligence, to summarize the history of American intelligence from George Washington up to Joe Biden to describe intelligence as an enterprise, including collection, analysis, and covert action. You examine counterintelligence, congressional oversight, cyber affairs, and even look to the future of what's changing with this revolution of open source information. That's a lot for one book. Talk about your intended audiences and what you hope they take away from this effort. 
Well, you're right, David. And the book that I ended up with is not the book I started out writing. So really, I think of the book as intended for two basic audiences. One is my students. I'm teaching a class at Stanford based on the book. I wrote this book to be a tool that faculty could use to educate the next generation about intelligence. I call this my intelligence 101 mission. So separating fact from fiction. So I wanted to have an engaging overview of the intelligence community. But there's a second type of audience I hope I reach, which is people who are in the policy world, who are experts, who are inside the IC. And there, I call it my intelligence 2.0 mission, which is how does emerging technology now really challenge the fundamentals of intelligence and how do we need to think about adaptation for the future in the community? Let's jump into a couple of substantive parts here. You express concern in the book about the overall lack of accurate knowledge among the general public about intelligence. Why is that? And what impact does that actually have on national security formulation and execution? You know, David, I I first got into this, where do we get information about intelligence question, living in Hollywood, right? So I'm teaching at UCLA. And I think it's no coincidence that I focused on spy-themed entertainment. It was sort of in the water, in the ether there. And what I discovered empirically, right, so doing survey research, was that spy-themed entertainment was adult education, that most Americans in my public opinion polling don't know anything about intelligence. They can't tell you who the DNI is. They don't know how many agencies there are. They don't know what role secrets or open source intelligence plays in a typical product. They don't know what the NSA does for a living, even amidst the Snowden revelations and the media frenzy. What do they know? They know it from fiction. So spy-themed entertainment has statistically significant effects on what people believe about what our intelligence agencies do and how well they do it. So that public opinion piece is part of what I found. And then the more I dug, the more I found examples of how spy-themed entertainment was influencing real policymakers, senators on the intelligence committee, Supreme Court justices, cadets and uh, military officers actually on the front lines. So I think there's a real education crisis. I think George Mason is an outlier right? There's a lot of focus on intelligence education. Most universities do not focus a lot on intelligence education. It's interesting that you you mentioned that because we definitely have had spy movies before. We had the James Bond series starting in the 70s, and I suppose its cultural influence has extended up to now, so there is a cumulative effect of what you're talking about. But there was also much less public information about the truth of intelligence back then. Sure, Alan Dulles wrote one book that very few people read relatively, but there weren't the kind of public events. There weren't public websites from the CIA and other agencies describing their work. Intelligence was not in the headlines very often in its early decades. So at the same time, you've had the rise of the spytainment, as you call it. You, You have had the rise in some availability of public information that is more realistic than a a Jason Bourne novel. Why do you think it is that the public is not picking up on that, even though it is out here and available for them? It's such an interesting question. You know, my first blush answer would be the volume of spy-themed entertainment is accelerating at a faster rate than the openness of the intelligence community. I'd have to take a closer look, but just to give you one data point, I know that there are twice as many spy-themed blockbusters released today compared to the number that were released in the 1980s. 
I know that there's a six times increase in the number of hit spy themed television shows on networks and streaming services today versus the 1990s. So while it's true that there is some more information in the public domain about what our intelligence agencies do, I think it's drowned out by this ubiquitous spy themed entertainment. You write in the book about an exercise, a prediction exercise that you give your students to illustrate why intelligence is so hard, why it's so hard to understand the intentions of another person in the class, but presumably you can project that out to the intentions of decision makers in other countries in the true intelligence business. What do you ask them? So it's so funny you mentioned this, David, because I literally just did this right before we got on the Zoom with the class of Stanford students. Um, so the exercise is this. I asked them to imagine that they have to write down on a piece of paper what they're going to do for, in this case, their summer. What kind of summer job? What are they going to do in the summer? And imagine that we're going to reconvene in a year and we're going to unfold those pieces of paper and assess, did you do what you said you were going to do? And then we go through this exercise of, well, did you, did you actually carry through with your own plans? And most of the students, in this case today, it was about half the students said, oh, there's no way I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. I didn't get the job I wanted, or I got a boyfriend, or I lost a boyfriend. And they give all sorts of reasons about why they will not end up doing what they say they're going to do. And I point out to them, that's the best case scenario of intelligence. That's you predicting you just a few months from now. And then I ask them to turn to their neighbor and look at their neighbor and try to predict what they're going to do for their summer instead. And then I say, and now imagine that your neighbor is trying everything they can to hide that information from you or to deceive you into thinking they're going to be doing something different. And they sort of nod their heads and realize, oh, this is a lot harder than I thought. That's intelligence. So you're saying that we probably don't know Vladimir Putin's vacation plans. That's my takeaway from this. <laughs> yes. I'm saying Vladimir Putin doesn't know Vladimir Putin's vacation plans. There you go. Hopefully not in uh, central Ukraine. So it seems to me that in the book, you, you, you walk through American intelligence history as a way of setting up its evolution for what intelligence really is and what it isn't uh, in terms of collection, in terms of analysis and particularly in terms of covert action. In talking to students and in speaking to a lot of public and civic groups as you do, you certainly get a range of questions and a range of assertions about the intel community. What do you think are the top myths, the top misunderstandings about covert action specifically, but intelligence more broadly that, that hit you all the time that you feel you need to continue to communicate about? I guess I'd say there are two big myths that I typically encounter. The first with respect to covert action is that it's some special set of dirty deeds that our country engages in. That covert action is somehow more sinister, less regulated, somehow a set of activities that the United States wouldn't otherwise do. And one of the things that I point out in the covert action chapter is in fact, every type of covert action has an overt counterpart. In covert action, we talk about regime change as a coup. Overt regime change is called war. And so I point out, for example, that Congress passed the Iraq Liberation Act, which explicitly called for regime change, the ouster of Saddam Hussein, and dedicated $97 million to get it done. So we, it doesn't get more overt than that. 
So it isn't some special bag of dirty tricks that the intelligence agencies do. What makes covert action covert is the not acknowledging US official government responsibility. So that's myth number one is what is covert action? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the second myth I hear a lot is that intelligence agencies are listening into your conversations with grandma. Right, Just like the movies, they have super high-tech gizmos that can spot you coming out of the bus terminal and track your every movement around the country uh, without you knowing it. And then it blows up on the big screen in the high-tech headquarters somewhere where Jason Bourne is being tracked. And that's, as you know, not really true either. And it's a lot more mundane and bureaucratic, and it's a lot more overseen by the executive, the judiciary, and the Congress uh, than the movies make it out to be. In a related question, an anonymous attendee asks us, if there were more educational opportunities for national security positions for college students that is actually working inside the national security establishment and the intelligence agencies, would this help to demystify intelligence, both for them and for coming back and telling others what covert action in the intelligence business is really like? I think so, but I think they're real challenges. And you know, you've lived this. Um, it's really hard to get inside the intelligence community, and especially hard for students. I mean, I had a student who wanted very much to work inside the CIA, and the agency didn't understand we were on the quarter system, and so couldn't figure out a start date that worked with the Stanford calendar. I mean, there are real basic pain points that make it very difficult, more difficult than it should be for young college students to get an understanding of what it's like on the inside. But I also think the intelligence community needs to forward deploy more, come to university campuses, engage in guest lectures and classes, uh, meet students where they are. That's even more demystifying to see people in students' home environments dressed like students on university campuses. There's another group of people that you write about that don't fully understand intelligence as well as they should. And in this case, it's perhaps more tragic because they're the ones authorizing and appropriating congressional action for intelligence. And these are the oversight committees in Congress, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and the Senate Select Committee for Intelligence. Now, you don't spend time attacking any individuals, far from it. But you point out that there are many disincentives in the congressional system for what you would call robust, helpful oversight of the Intelligence Committee. Tell us what's wrong with congressional oversight structures and incentives and what we could do about it. Yeah, so, you know, I'm glad you brought this up. This is where being a political scientist may be an asset, not a liability. So I don't look at individuals and who's up and who's down. And of course, we know from experience that there are certain members of Congress that care deeply about intelligence oversight and dedicate themselves to it, but the average member does not. And why is that the case? And I think the answer is three things. It's information, it's incentives, and it's institutions. There is huge information asymmetry for the oversight committees, right? They they can't have anywhere near the information about what's going on inside the intelligence community that typical oversight committees have. That's just the nature of the beast. But what is really unusual about intelligence is they have no alternative sources of information. So in every other area of policy, there are interest groups. And interest groups are low-cost information providers. They keep members of Congress up to date with the latest bulletin on policy X, Y, or Z. But there aren't that same kind of interest groups in intelligence. And so members of Congress are on their own. 
And that means they have to devote a lot more effort to becoming expert in intelligence. So there's an information problem. Then there's the incentive problem. There's no Iowa for intelligence. So I always say representatives from Iowa have to care about the agriculture industry because if they don't, they won't get reelected. There's no Iowa equivalent, no geographic concentration where you have to learn the intelligence business or get voted out of office. So I think there's a huge incentive problem for members of Congress. They can't even talk about their work on the intelligence committees to the district, to the folks back home in the district. So it's an electoral loser to serve on those oversight committees for most members of Congress. And then there's the institutional factors or features where Congress, I found, has tied their own hands in some ways. So the House, I pick on the House a little bit in my book, the House still has term limits for its members, which means just when members of the committee understand what the acronyms of the intelligence agencies mean, they have to stop serving on the intelligence committee. If you don't develop expertise, you can't ask good questions. If you can't ask good questions, you're not doing good oversight. And so those three things really stack the deck against robust oversight, no matter who's in power. Let's dig down a bit on that last point, because the Senate also had some term limits uh, in the past, although I, my understanding is those are gone now. There are two ways around that. You know, one is to stay on the committee or bounce to the Foreign Relations Committee and other things that have similar exposures to national security affairs. The other, of course, is staff, like any congressional committee. You have a lot of expertise in the staff, including a lot of members of the staff who are former intelligence community employees. That doesn't entirely get over your first point, however, which is the information gap, because even if you're experienced in the community, you're not in there now. And the information is really all on that executive branch side. But there are some ways of, of getting over it. Can you think of anything, again, wearing the political science hat, can you think of anything that could be done to change that dynamic? I don't think you're going to change the electoral dynamic unless you happen to be representing Central Maryland, Northern Virginia. Even then, the majority of your constituents aren't voting based on your intelligence committee work, but at least you have some constituents who care more than most other places in the country. But what can you do about those, those first and third elements, the information and the institutional structure? Yeah, it's such a great question. You know, as I think about, we can't, I mean, to put your question another way, we can't increase the benefits of service on the committee. So how can we lower the costs of service on the committee? And one way is to, is to enhance the number of uh, staff that members of the committee get. So the staff do God's work right on that committee. Um, but, you know, there aren't very many of them. So a more robust staff capability would help. I also think that there are institutional levers that can reduce partisanship. And you know, I talked about term limits in the House. There's, there are not term limits in the Senate, that's true. But the Senate also has some different features that reduce partisanship. So there's a narrower margin between the majority and the minority on the Senate side. So they have to work across party lines in order to get agreement. You want that to be a feature of the institution forcing members to have to work across party lines to come to an agreement on something. And I think it's one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons why the Senate has been much more bipartisan even now uh, in this polarized time than the House. One of the things you do in your book that is not unprecedented, but it's certainly unusual among a lot of popular and academic studies of parts of the intelligence business is you bring in a lot of voices of former intelligence officers up to and including former leaders in the intelligence community. Sometimes it's 
a great anecdote where they can just phrase something in a way uh, that captures the essential element. And other times they're explaining things. They're, they're offering from their point of view something about intelligence that, that helps support a point you're making or show an alternative. Why did you find it important to bring those voices in? What do they add to your overall explanation of this in the intelligence 101 sense that you highlighted earlier? You know, David, I think back to when I, I first started doing research on the intelligence community, and I told one of my professors, not my advisor, Condi Rice, I told another professor, I was going to Washington to interview people, and this professor said, what for? <laughs> right? And the point was, I really felt it was important to get outside the ivory tower and to hear what it was like from people on the inside. Not that I'm always going to agree with it, not that I take it at face value, but I need to understand that perspective. And this book is really the first one where I dedicated a section of the book to try to have those voices come through. So I asked a number of former and current intelligence officials questions like, what did you tell your kids? And how did they react when you told them what you did for a living? What were your biggest ethical challenges that you faced in your job? What was your best and worst day in your career? And I'm really proud that not only did they share these stories, but the stories come out in the book. And I think it, it shows a very human lens that these are real people with real dilemmas doing real work on behalf of the nation. And they do it almost entirely in secret. And so that was a, a part of the book that I really was excited about. And I'm really um, proud that, it, that it's in there. The open source revolution is something that you've been thinking a lot about researching and trying to really get, get your head around in recent years. And three factors stand out to you related to this democratization, if you will, of intelligence, related to this explosion of open source resources and tools. In a moment, I'd like to chat about what we can do about that. But first, let's break down that problem. What are those factors? What are the things that are showing the democratization of open source information, information available to everyone, not just intelligence officers? And how does each present as a good or a bad thing for national security? So I think about really three key features of this open source revolution. We talk about open source, I'll be a little more concrete. Think about the internet, social media, more people have cell phones on earth than running water today, right? I mean, it's an astounding kind of connectivity that we have. We have the commercial satellite revolution. So now we get remote sensing for everybody, right? At low or no cost. We have AI, we have quantum computing. So it's a convergence of technologies that are empowering this open source revolution. And I think they're doing a number of things. Number one, the technological changes are changing the threat landscape. So it's not just about open source. Cyber threats are really a new type of threat landscape for our intelligence agencies that new actors and um, old adversaries can threaten us across distances armed with technology. But the second key sort of change driven by open source is analytic overload, right? So we're all drowning in data and we have to have the adoption of new technological tools in order to have insight generated from this expanding haystack of information in the world, right? So we think about um, the discovery of China's nuclear missile silos right over the summer, open source intelligence, non-governmental researchers discovered that, and that's why it was in the Washington Post. So it's a whole new ballgame when it comes to analysis of information 
And then the third big change that's being driven, I think, by open source is the role or limitations of secrecy. So intelligence agencies always prefer secrets and are used to operating in secret. But in this open source world, intelligence and insight are moving faster and they're more transparent and there's more competition for intelligence. And that means that traditional intelligence agencies not only have to contend with a different speed of open source intelligence production, but they have to contend with different customers. So voters need intelligence now, tech leaders need intelligence now about cyber threats. So intelligence agencies have to produce more for the open. It's not just what they're bringing in that's open source, it's what's coming out that has to be for the open as well. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The intelligence community in the past has elected, in, in some cases, to create a separate bureaucratic entity to focus on collection. I mean, inherently... The Central Intelligence Agency focuses on human collection on the collection side, along with some defense collection as well. The National Security Agency focuses on SIGINT, signals collection. But there is an agency, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, the most awkwardly three-lettered acronym in the IC. Um, but the NGA focuses on imagery collection analysis. Should there be, give, give us the best argument for why there should be a separate open source intelligence agency. So I, I am advocating the creation of a separate open source intelligence agency. There are plenty of my friends who want to arm wrestle me over this and I can give you the, the counter argument to it too. But the argument in favor is if we think about air power before the air force was separated from the army, the army didn't give air power the attention or resources it needed because the army favored land warfare. Same thing is true with secret intelligence or clandestinely acquired intelligence and open source. Existing intelligence agencies are always going to prize secrets more than open source. And one intelligence official put it to me better than I could ever say it. He said, you know, we think that if something costs, if a piece of information costs a trillion dollars to get, it must be worth a trillion dollars. That's not the world we live in. So we need an open source intelligence agency because the natural bureaucratic tendency is not gonna to be to give open source the attention and the resources that it needs. But I think there are two other reasons why we need one. And that is an open source intelligence agency can be an enabler for adopting new technological analytic tools because they're dealing with open source information. It can be a test bed for innovation uh, to accelerate adoption of uh, new technologies for analysis. And it can also be a way to attract talent so we think about having an open source agency that 
can be more open on university campuses, can forward deploy to places where people want to live, like Austin and maybe Palo Alto. I think people are moving to Austin faster than moving to Palo Alto these days. But so I think it's an enabler for technologies and talent, not just a, a creator of better open source intelligence. Okay, let's hit the skeptical approaches to that. And there, there are a few, right, from sure. different angles. Uh, one is based on experience in the community. I can certainly say as an analyst, I, I used open source information, which was available. Uh, certainly back in those days, decades ago, we did not have all the tools that we have now, but my understanding is things have come a long way. Uh, as a manager, I remember pushing open source to be incorporated in many intelligence products. As a PDB briefer, open source information was part of our all source presentation to everyone up to and including the president. There's an assumption in some of what you say that either that isn't going on or it's not going on enough. And that's one of those areas that's a tough nut to crack to figure out exactly how open source tools and techniques are being incorporated in real time when the intelligence community, by definition, is, is somewhat walled off and we can't see exactly what's happening. How confident are you that a separate agency would do it better than perhaps the analysts at CIA and other agencies are doing it right now? Well, I think it's fair to say there are absolutely there are open source efforts already underway in different elements of the intelligence community. But from what I'm hearing from people on the inside, it's not enough. It's not that it doesn't exist, but it's not it doesn't exist in a robust manner. And so, you know, one counter argument to my proposal would be that if you separate open source intelligence out, then you're going to rob it of its capabilities inside existing agencies. It'll be an excuse for existing agencies to do less with open source rather than more. That's one argument. A second argument is you're creating a 19th agency to coordinate. If coordination is still a challenge, which it is, 19 is always a worse number than 18 when it comes to coordination. And I recognize that too. But I think the name of the game is open source intelligence. And I think the race for insight is going to be won or lost by the nation that harnesses the enormous quantity of available information and uses new tools to mine it uh, for decision advantage. And I think we're gonna lose if we don't dedicate more attention to open source. And I don't see a better way. It's not a great option, but it's the best option in a world of bad options. Is there a way to mitigate that potential downside? Uh, looking at your book, you spend a lot of time in the first half of the book looking at the history of the intelligence community and its evolution. And one of the themes that comes across there is that and I'll quote the way you say it in one place, the danger of fragmentation is that dots don't get connected because they are collected and marooned in different parts of the sprawling intelligence community. If this is the history of the evolution of the IC, you're proposing something that you know could do that. What does that experience tell you as a way of ensuring that it doesn't happen in this case? Mm. So I think two things there. One is I think as a general organizational principle, if you want to innovate, you decentralize, right? The more pockets of creativity you have, of experimentation you have, the more likely you are to innovate. So if the chief challenge in intelligence today is innovation, decentralization of organizations actually has benefits. If the chief challenge is coordination, then you want to centralize more. So I think it's always a, a trade-off between that innovation decentralization model and the coordination centralization model. And I think we need to tilt more toward innovation. But you asked how to mitigate those challenges. 
I think a lot of it has to do with culture. So even if we have a separate open source intelligence agency, it is a constant battle to get existing agencies to recognize the value of open source and to treat a 19th element as a first class citizen part of the intelligence community. That's about leadership. It's also some about authorities. Uh, and, and back to Congress, it's about educating Congress about how important this is, because you need Congress to be at the table as well. Hopefully some lessons are learned on integrating a new member into the IC by the inclusion of the Space Force intelligence element, which has just been added recently. I'm gonna to turn to some audience questions here, some of which are related to this topic, some of which bounce back to previous ones. But uh, Louis Votman of the Shar School asks, do you believe that the emergence of new technologies and intelligence practices such as open source collection expanding, does this mean that other intelligence disciplines will need to evolve or eventually be displaced? I think it does mean they need to evolve. And I think of open source not just as a type of int, but as an ecosystem of new organizational players. So you can think about the open source community. Some of them are involved in geoint, right? Geospatial intelligence. Some may be involved in SIGINT, signals intelligence. Some may be involved in humant. And so if we think about open source as an ecosystem, well, now the challenge for the IC is how do we understand the dynamics of this emerging ecosystem? How do we shape its norms? How do we make sure that we can upgrade the quality of the major players and what they produce in this ecosystem? And so I think it's probably going to affect every element of the intelligence community because it's a new emerging organizational landscape. It's not just more stuff collected in a different way. Mm -hmm. Jim Denoy, a former senior intelligence officer and a adjunct professor here at the school, uh, would like you to expand on the issue of private sector intelligence entities uh, with access to commercial satellite imagery, among other things. What impact are they having on formerly government-only sources of information? Are you seeing that there's an evolution in the flow of information and specifically in the intelligence community's former monopoly on issues of collection and analysis? Well, let me just say I'm delighted that Jim has joined us. I had a great time guest lecturing in his class about spy-themed entertainment, where he had this wonderful background of James Bond, which I still remember. It's a great question. You know, what I'm seeing with, with um, commercial satellite companies is first capabilities that are really extraordinary, maybe not the same as government capabilities, but boy, they're really good, both in terms of um, resolution quality, in terms of numbers of satellites in orbit. So you get the revisit rate is much more frequent. So you can see you get coverage over the same location multiple times a day, which gives you a sort of a moving picture of what's happening on the ground and uh, frequency capabilities like synthetic aperture uh, radar. So lots more capabilities available to lots more different people. And what you're seeing, what's already been publicly reported is that the intelligence community is spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year purchasing commercially available data from these kinds of companies. So this is a positive development in many ways because we don't need to do it all ourselves at a much higher cost. Leveraging the satellites and the information they're providing for government use, I think is, a, is an exciting development. We have several questions coming in about the situation with Russia and its threats to Ukraine. So I'm going to put you on the spot here, not 
on the substance itself, but on something that I and others have noted about what's happened in the last few weeks, which is the extraordinary amount of authorized disclosures of intelligence information, quite consciously, it seems. These are not the traditional Washington leaks. This is a deliberate plan to use intelligence information not solely for deliberative decision-making that is protected from the public, but to deploy it in the public to hopefully affect reality overseas. We're in this period where almost every day we are seeing some kind of disclosure about intelligence regarding the disposition of Russian forces and even the potential intent of Russian leadership. Do you see this as different? Of course, we've seen it in the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Gulf War, things like this would come up. But do you see it as different in its amount like uh, some of us do? And if so, really curious to hear your perspective uh, from your vantage point on whether you think this is the start of a new trend because we do have the ability to affect reality even more with these disclosures, with the wider array of intelligence that's available, as you've mentioned, or is this such an unusual case that we shouldn't read too much into it? So I'll give you my answer, but I hope we can trade. I'd love to hear your answer to the same question. I think this is a new development. I think it's a really clever strategy. It was described by one of my colleagues in a seminar yesterday as deterrence by disclosure. And I think that's a really interesting idea. And I, and I think it is new because what we're talking about is combating information warfare. So I distinguish between the revelations of how many troops the Russians have on the border and the revelations of the false flag operations. So saying that Putin is conjuring a pretext for invasion. There's this movie he's got going on with actors and corpses and don't believe any of it. That's information warfare. So suddenly the first narrative out of the gate is don't listen to anything Putin tells you. It's the be careful narrative. It's not the disinformation narrative. And I think that appears to be deliberate. And if it isn't deliberate, it should be applauded. I think it's a really useful strategy. And I think because information warfare is such a crucial component of how Putin operates, and it's not just Putin, it's other states as well. I think this strategy is not just a one-off. I think we're likely to see more of this kind of how do we use the information environment to our advantage by revealing, not just concealing in the future? But I'd love to know what you think about it too. Well, it's, it's interesting to me that it highlights this fundamental difference between intelligence officers and, and policymakers. Intelligence officers habitually want to protect. Any disclosure of any intelligence just makes people's blood boil. And there's a reason for that, right? Because these are the people who are closest to the collection. They understand the sources and the risks those sources are often taking if they are people in order to provide that information, um, but also the risks in terms of the societal cost and the economics of technical collection. So of course you want to protect that, but it can get to the extreme. It can get to ridiculous extremes where people don't want to release any collected information to any policymaker because it might possibly be leaked in which case, why are you collecting it at all if you're not going to share it with somebody who can use it? Whereas the policy side is you're collecting information so that we can use it. We, we don't want to be inhibited from using information because that's why we have it. I think that's healthy. I think there is a balance between the two that is similar to, but does not fully correlate with the short-term, long-term debate and the dilemmas that come up with that. 
in this case, I find it fascinating that the president who is orchestrating all of this is Joe Biden, who is someone who has been exceptionally familiar with intelligence for many decades from his service on the Foreign Relations Committee primarily, but other committees where he had access to such intelligence, and a president who was vice president for eight years and saw many examples of both good use of disclosures and bad use of disclosures, uh, including not only, but including the bin Laden Abbottabad raid, which had disclosures going on almost immediately thereafter. So it's hard to say whether it's a Joe Biden thing to some degree, or whether it is more related to those dynamics of information that you're highlighting. I could make a good case either way. What about cyber issues? Uh, you, you close the book by talking about the evolution of cyber activities and the unprecedented demands that cyber presses on intelligence. Talk through that a little bit and how we need to be thinking about the intelligence enterprise to come to grips with the increase in cyber activity. Yeah, well, you know, I think Chris Inglis has written a great chapter about the intelligence demands in cyberspace. And I learned a lot from that chapter. He was part of the, the um, book project that Herb Lynn and I did about offensive cyber operations. And we think about what does intelligence have to do with cyber and how is it different? There are a number of, of key differences. Number one is there's so much in cyberspace that has to be verified. And we talk about the information battleground. And that means that intelligence agencies have a bigger role to play. Context matters more in trying to figure out what things mean online. So the demands overall are greater. The second, I think, key difference is when is a weapon a weapon in cyberspace, right? So as I learned, you know, 90% of, of an exploit looks the same, whether it's intelligence surveillance, whether it's defending your own networks, or whether it's engaging in an offensive cyber operation. And when 90% technically looks the same, yeah. again, intelligence matters more. And mm -hmm. then the third challenge that I think that is really exacerbated by cyberspace is, and, and Chris really writes about this so well, that the battlefield is changing every millisecond. So when you think about physical space, the Pentagon can draw up target lists of buildings and missile silos and can be fairly confident those are hard to move, right, in a short period of time. But draw up your target list in cyberspace. It's changing every time someone installs an update, plugs in a USB drive, someone changes their computer system or unplugs from the internet, or there's a new zero-day vulnerability that's discovered. That battle space is constantly changing. And what that means for intelligence is it has to be ubiquitous. It has to go everywhere because you don't know where you're going to have your access. It has to be persistent. It has to be constantly updated. It has to be real time because the target landscape is changing all the time. That's an extraordinary set of demands for our intelligence agencies. And it's in some ways really unique to cyberspace. What about one specific aspect of it that's just emerging now, which is this, this metaverse, this, if you will, virtual reality, second life type program. What would the IC do if intelligence, which you know it will, right? Eventually there will be bad actors exploiting the metaverse for intelligence collection or information operations. Uh, so what should the IC do to address the challenges in an entirely new domain like the emerging metaverse? 
well, I'm worried about what Facebook has screwed up in the real world before, before we worry about what we need to do to combat the metaverse. It's a great question. I need to give that some more thought. I mean, I think looking now at the challenges we have in cyberspace, think about how many years it's taken for us to get our arms around what's different about this domain. You know, I think about just even a few years ago, we talked about acts of war in cyberspace, like they'd be big and obvious and we'd know it when we saw it. And that's turned out not to be the case. The threshold of war has been gray zone activity. So we've been wrong about how cyberspace has played out for understandable reasons. I couldn't begin to tell you what the metaverse would look like and what the intelligence demands are, but I think you've given me a topic for another book in the future. <laughs> I don't think there's any shortage of those, but if we can help, we will. I'll give you one more. And this one may be a topic for another book, but. To me, it's important to get your view on this because you've been around the intelligence community long enough and on these working groups to get some purchase on this question that currently serving intelligence officers find very, very difficult to talk about at all. And it's the issue of biometric technology and how it affects intelligence collection. How do you think biometric advances have complicated the work of fielding human operatives around the world and whether this in, in a sense will contribute to the relative decline of human compared to open source information that you've described elsewhere. So I'm really concerned about biometric identification and I think it's creating denied space or at least certainly difficult space for human intelligence collection, not just because it's hard for officers to meet with potential assets on the ground, but because it means it's hard to develop covers that are believable because you have to have a digital footprint that is a long time in the making. So, you know, I tell my own kids, the internet lives forever, be careful what you put up there. Um, but from an intelligence perspective, uh, the internet lives forever. How are you gonna create useful covers for people um, that are believable? Now that's not to say these are insurmountable, but I think it is going to require a lot more creativity. I've, you know, there's been open source reporting about um, not thinking about using uh, different uh, identities when you go to different countries, actually operating under a true identity. And I think we need to think about more creative approaches like that. It's a really challenging problem when we think about combating techno-authoritarian regimes like China in particular. Right. Let me close by bringing it back to a, a nexus between your work as a professor and teaching prospective intelligence officers and an analyst of the intelligence community itself. It was several years ago now that the ODNI released its uh, Intelligence Community Directive ICD-203, which laid out the analytic tradecraft standards. In your research, you've shown that often early in the agency's history, it's hard to judge the success of intelligence analysis, in part because intelligence analysis affects reality, and it's hard to tell whether a claim that a country is going to invade is a failure if the reason they don't invade is because that analysis affected the situation on the ground. You also point out there's a long-term, short-term issue is how, how long is your time frame for measuring success? But Bob Katrinos asks specifically, has the ICD-203 set of analytic standards by which you would measure good analysis, has that affected the way that university students conduct research and analysis? Do you use it in your intelligence courses to help students look at something like an intelligence analyst would? 
No, I can only speak for my own courses that I've taught. And the answer is I haven't used it. Um, I could, but I think good analysis is good analysis. And when I think about critical thinking and how I want to teach students to think about their thinking, I want them to challenge all of their prior beliefs. I want them to engage with material that they disagree with. I want them to hear arguments and actually put themselves in the position of people debating the opposite side of the question that they might be researching. So I think that basic education function in higher education is more challenging now in this environment um, that students don't wanna be uncomfortable. They wanna be in classes with people who agree with them. And I think we're doing them a disservice unless we do make them uncomfortable. So I'd have to take a, a closer look at how I would incorporate that into my class, which I'm gonna do when we get off this Zoom. But I do think at the end of the day, the same kinds of things that help combat cognitive bias in everyday life, red team analysis, thinking backwards, scenario planning, um, those same kinds of tools that the IC is using, we should be using in the classroom as well. Amy, I want to thank you for joining us and sharing your insights about this wide range of things related to intelligence. We appreciate it. David, thanks so much for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. We encourage you to donate to Lawfare and become a material supporter at our Patreon page to support podcasts like this and our other podcasts, Chatter, Rational Security, the No Bull podcast, and even Arbiters of Truth, the new podcast that you will also hear on this podcast every Thursday. This episode is edited and produced by Jen Pacha Howell, with a special thank you to the folks at the Michael V. Hayden Center at the Shar School of Public Policy at George Mason University. Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details.